Good morning, Midland Free. Just clicking off my boots here, getting a little snow off. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us this morning. You had many an excuse to stay in bed, and yet you came, and we are glad you did. If you're a little one, and I mean like really, really, really little one, We've got something new for you. We've got a really cool new cry room in back where you can cry or you can have lunch or sleep or whatever you need to do. It used to be a room with white cinder block walls, but now it is a beautiful uh, new sort of thing. And this is just a good example of what you can do if you're a volunteer. This is entirely volunteer labor project, design, fulfillment, everything else like that. So... We're excited and thankful for that and welcome you regardless of whatever age you might be. We have a place for you. Today we're continuing our Disciple Maker series. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the preaching pastors here. I am the preaching pastor here, one of the pastors. And I'm delighted to have you this morning and we are continuing along in this series uh, discussing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, particularly a disciple maker. I grew up, uh, some of you probably already know this, in uh, Rochester, Minnesota in my early days. So many a Sunday morning looked just like today. Cold, snowy, more snow in the forecast, etc., etc. One of my friends happened to be the pastor's son. And we all know about those pastor's kids, right? (laughs) Well, anyways, I went to play with him frequently on Sunday afternoons, and when it was snowy out, one thing we would find his dad doing is simply passed out in his chair, just like, you know. And I'm a little kid, and I'm like, why is this guy doing this on Sunday afternoon when there's so much fun to be had? Now guess what I'm doing on Sunday afternoon, right? (laughs) I understand the plight of the pastor all the more. And his house was such that he had a room sort of cordoned off. It's in Minnesota, and it's cold, and he's trying to save money, so he's using like a wood-burning stove. And this was the one room he didn't heat, so no one else would go in there, which made it perfect for him. So he would go sleep, curl up under a blanket, and then be ready to go again Sunday night for the next sermon. Well, if I went home to my house that afternoon, my dad wasn't a pastor, but guess what I would find? The same thing. Instead, he's curled up in a warm room, falling asleep to the sweet lullaby of John Madden. And there's my dad sleeping in his big brown chair. And so, as I look at this, I see these big burly men all cuddled up and sleeping like little babies. And we guys, we like to pretend, you know, like we're macho and we're tough and we don't need anything. But in reality... We are human beings with bodies made of flesh that get tired and get hungry and get sad and get cold and get worn out. And we need encouragement. We need comfort and we need love. We need these things, even if we're a big, tough, macho man. We need encouragement. And now as I look at you know, my father and my friend's father and myself and all the different ways we go about doing it, It's kind of interesting because we probably each have our own thing, whether it's golf or fishing or hunting or, you know, woodworking or whatever. We go somewhere to get away from it all and find fulfillment and feel built up. 
And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can sort of lapse into this mindset that um, if we could just do X, Y, Z, then we would feel better and everything would be okay. So, for example, if you just say, if I could just fill in the blank, for example, you could say, I, if, I, if I could just fix the problem, if I could just meet the right person, if I could just get married, if I could just get the right job, if I could just build the house I've always wanted or drive the car that never breaks or lose X amount of pounds, if I could win the Powerball. Why did you laugh? <laughs> All right, don't check your ticket stubs. Here we go. If I could just do X, Y, Z, then all of a sudden everything would change and life would be okay. And while we may think that this is somewhat innocent thinking, what I want to convince you of is that protasis and apotasis, that if and then, is straight from the pit of hell. In other words, what the devil is doing is he is intentionally distracting you from your real desire with another desire. He is saying to you, hey, go after this. Let this be your fulfillment. Let this be your encouragement. Let this be your strength and let this be your joy. And if you get it, then you'll be happy. And boy, we do. We chase after it like, oh man, that is what I want. Here I go. Here it comes. I got it. That was cool. What's next? Or maybe you don't have it and you just keep thinking, man, if I could, if I could, if I could, if I could. And what happens then is that our desires motivate us, but they never fill us. And we continue to follow after these. In essence, what we're doing is starving to death on candy. The devil is dropping a little bit of sweet and a little bit of sweet and a little bit of sweet and leading us down the wrong path. And then we are malnourished, we are misdirected, and we die. Take, for example, if you don't believe me, there's a lot of people who are much more famous than I that have followed this course. People who have perhaps said to themselves, if I just, then I will. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's a pretty good example. This guy, if you are familiar with him, is an incredible actor. He is famous, or perhaps I should say infamous, for being nefarious. In other words, he takes the bad guy role and does it really well. <laughs> Mission Impossible 3, for example, he is so scary. He's not big and tough and whatever else, but his look penetrates your heart and shocks fear into you. And this guy had an incredibly successful career. He's worth well over $30 million. He's wanted in all the actors and screen guilds. Anytime they have a bad guy part, they're knocking on his door. And all of a sudden, one day, when it's time to pick up his kids from school, his friend goes over to figure out why he's late and finds him lying dead on the bathroom floor with a needle in his arm. But what about some guy who's still around? He's young, he's good looking. His name is Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady, highly successful, and on the serial and magazine covers, he looks great. But if you actually go home today and you Google 60 Minutes, the program, 
and you type in the words more than this and Tom Brady, you'll find some very open and candid and interesting um, admissions of his real state. The interviewer is going back and forth with him and he's saying, um, look, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm on TV, but man, you are on TV, right? You're on the Super Bowl, the world stage. Everybody knows your name. You are successful and you have trophies in every way. You have three Super Bowl trophies. You have a trophy wife. You have a trophy contract. You have everything a man could possibly want. Are you happy? Are you satisfied? Tom Brady looks straight at the camera and says, OMG, no. He said, there's got to be more than this. Those are exact words. You can look them up and see him say them himself. And what that tells me, the guy who doesn't have all that stuff, the one who sometimes slips into that sinful pattern of thinking, if I just could, is this, is that, you know, what we really long for is not these little trinkets along the way, but what we want is everything. What, in fact, we want is absolute perfection. And therefore, what we want is God. That is how the Bible describes our broken condition in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says this, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that sounds nice and churchy and religious and we talk about glory and we think about halos and white glows and everything else, but let me say this is what that means. Glory is basically this. Glory is the essence or character of God. Well, what is the essence or character of God? It is God's absolute perfection in every way. His moral attributes, His power, His knowledge, His being, who He is, is by definition glorious. We have no human language or even indeed the the ability to comprehend His infinite power and infinite worth. We've run out of words. And so at this point we just say, God is glorious. He is beyond us. He is infinite. He is amazing. He is glory. So what then are we? Well, not that. That's for sure. We try to be cool. We try to be tough. We try to be whatever. But we are not that. And the Bible makes it very clear that no matter how good you are, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, whoever, you fall short of God's glory, of God's perfection. That can never be attained by a human being. It is simply impossible. Therefore, we have this condition of fallenness or brokenness, sinful state. And it's incredibly frustrating because we all feel that desire within us and we want something more, but we're never there. And it feels like we're just trying to throw a rock at the moon. We're just chucking it and chucking it and chucking it, but we're never coming close. Our arm is wearing out and we're getting discouraged. Here we are falling short of the glory of God. Fortunately for us, God has not left us in this way. And consequently, he, did, he comes alongside of us with a plan that He had thought of from the very beginning. Knowing who we are and what we would do, God planned in multiple phases to save and redeem us. 
So in essence, what you see working out through the plan of uh, the Bible or the plan of salvation, the history of redemption, is this. You see phase one, if you will, which we call um, the old system or the old agreement or in other words, the old covenant or the old testament. All of those words kind of go together. It is a system or an agreement, a covenant or a testament. And under this agreement, God has said, yep, I got it. You're broken. You need help. There's no question. So what we will do is this. Based on, my char- on God's character, on who he is, absolute moral perfection in every way, he says, I am eternal and I am life. But because you sin, therefore you die. That is the consequence. Therefore, the system, the Old Testament system or covenant works out like this. You'll see it on a slide here. It's, it tells us that the wages or the just reward, what you get as a result of sin is death. You get that. Now, as living human beings, creatures with blood, we understand that the life of the creature is in the blood. So you lose your blood, you die. Therefore, in order to rightly pay the price for sin, which is death, there must be a shedding of blood. Sometimes people who are outside of Christianity say, man, this thing is weird. What's up with all the blood? Here it is. Look, the life of the creature is in the blood. Wages of sin is death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's no payment. There's no justice. There is no forgiveness of sins. So God sets up this system. He says, this is how it's going to work. You're going to sacrifice a lamb. The lamb's going to shed its blood. It's going to temporarily atone for, cover, or wash away what you did that day. There's your temporary covering. But we know that you're going to sin the next day, and so you're going to have to do it again and again and again and over and over again. And in fact, that lamb was never a perfect sacrifice because it's only an animal and it's not perfect, and it just isn't going to fully satisfy God. So over and over again, the people are trapped inside this law, this system, this way of doing things that is enslaved to sin which, as a result, produces death. It is enslaved to sin and death. That is what the New Testament author picks up on in Paul when he says, you are enslaved to the law of sin and death. So here they are under this system, and, can, and humanity is continually, over and over again, stuck, falling short. Now, that's phase one. Phase two is this. Now, kids, listen carefully. This is the essence of everything we believe and the answer to Tom Brady's question. Surely, there's more than this. What is the difference between heaven and hell? Life and death? Satisfaction and depression? Joy and pain? Fulfillment and longing? It is this, that in order to come up with Perfect fulfillment, what God has done, is combined perfection and humanity into one. And in this combination of fulfillment and perfection and deity with humanity, now there is the potential for humanity to be completely fulfilled in deity because of this one who is. And so in other words, in the Bible... In John chapter 1, 
what it says is this. It begins to illustrate what's going on. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But let me, let me, or yeah, let me flesh that out right now. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the word with and the word was tell you two different things. With tells you he's distinct from. Okay, so that means he's a different person than God the Father. Was tells you that he is co-equal with, that he is the same as. So you have both distinction and equality. You have difference in person, but essential nature in essence. And therefore, what you have in the God-man is something that you do not have in the engineering world. This is completely different. You have 100% of one and 100% of the other. And it's not 200%. It is the God-man. Jesus Christ, having complete deity and complete humanity united into one, is the eternal God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. He's not 80-20, 60-40, 70-30, anything like that. It's not God inside of a human body, but it is a fully human and fully divine being, fully united in one. This is the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon in essential Orthodox Christianity. John 1. So Jesus is, in essence, the perfect combination that can bring us fulfillment. Because as God, he brings deity down to humanity. And as humanity, he elevates humanity to deity. So in Christ, you have the perfect unity of both. And therefore, it is in Christ, in Christ alone, and nothing else that we can find perfection and fulfillment. Only in Christ. That is the only place that that thing exists. For what, Romans 8.3 says, the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. For, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father made God the Son, who was perfect and knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become that righteousness, that perfection, that glory, that essential essence of God. Where? On our own? No. In Him. For while we were weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, Jesus, the God-man, takes the place of the Lamb. He becomes our perfect sacrifice. And as such, he fulfills his mission to bring God to humanity and humanity to man by atoning or washing or covering or taking care of our sins once and for all. This was the reason that Christ came. Mark 10.45 says it like this. It says, For the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is a payment. It is a buying back. If you watch this passage that I'm taking a long time to introduce, you will see there are several very weighty theological and heady terms in it. 
There are terms like justification, redemption, and propitiation. And what the apostle is doing is he is using several images and they are metaphors to understand what God is doing. For example, the law courts. There's justification, which is a pardon. There is the slave market as another example. You have redemption and liberation. And you have the altar as well in which you have atonement and propitiation. So I'm intentionally trying to set you up for this passage and somewhat explain things before we get there. That way when we arrive and land in Romans chapter 3, we will walk through it smoothly. And I'm not going to focus on all of these analogies, but instead just bring out what that looks like for you in your life today. So the Son of Man came to give Himself, the God-Man came to give Himself as a ransom or a payment, a liberation for many. Therefore, in Him we have been freed from the law of sin and death to which we were enslaved through His blood shed on the cross, which is the redemption for our sins. Therefore, the passage ends, and it uses these two really cool terms. It says the just and the justif- justifier. Described in two different ways, God is both just in that He rightly punished sin, but His holiness and forgiveness is not offended because He punished it in Christ. Therefore, He can forgive it in you. And bring those two things together. That's the cross. The cross is a place where God displays both His mercy and His justice at the exact same time. He is, in a sense, vindicating Himself. As you will see in this passage, it says, how can He look over all the sins that were committed in the past? Because He's looking forward to the crucifixion of Christ and seeing complete satisfaction of His wrath which we call propitiation, in that act, and therefore the ability to forgive sins because the God-man has taken our place. Okay then. Romans chapter 3. Let's begin the sermon. Here we go. Don't worry. I'll let you get home in time to warm your toes by the fire. Here we go. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. The basic essence of this is to believe in Jesus. Now, it's going to use a lot of big terms. And as we read this, I am going to pull out some of those things that I just mentioned to you because I want you to see this text through the similar lens that a Jewish person would have read it. In other words, they're thinking with the Old Testament law in the back of their mind, this is how we used to work, but now how are we supposed to work? Phase one to phase two. And this is Paul walking them through that. So Romans chapter 3. This is, not, this is going to be the Bible and then additional study. This is not me just ad-libbing and making things up. This is based on things that I've read in other places. So here we go. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now, but now. Stop. Important words. But now in contradistinction to then. Then, when we were sacrificing lambs, we were doing it over and over again, and we were never free. But now, 
as a result of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, now in phase two of his plan of redemption, now in the New Testament, now there has been a decisive step forward in redemptive history. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That was phase one. Phase two, how, now phase one is important. Paul doesn't want you to forget that. So he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they're leading up to it. But phase two, verse 22, says that the righteousness of God through faith, there, this is phase two, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Now, to you Jews, you need to understand there's no distinction. You used to think there was a distinction because you had the law. You had it and you were the possessors of divine revelation. But now that righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, there is no longer any distinction. Christ is free to all. Therefore, know that there is no distinction. And let me show you, even though you might think you're righteous because of the law, Let me show you your real condition. And it is this. Verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now in in about two verses, the entire gospel is summed up. Verses 24 through 25. Here's those big words. And are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. Why did God do this? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He may be both the just and the justifier of the one, here's the bottom line, who has faith in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Perhaps all of us are at some point in that journey, whether we're just hearing the name for the first time, whether we're beginning to experiment, whether we've believed and kind of left it at that, whether we've been believing, whether we're struggling, or whether we've been believing for a long time. But what I'd like to show you today is what that means to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus means, here's four things for my note-taking friends, to believe, number one, in who he is, in his essence. Number two, to believe in what he has done. And number three, to believe in what he can do. And number four, in what he will do. So who he is, what he has done, what he can do, and what he will do. So number one, who is he? Well, I already got at this a little bit earlier. He is the God-man. He's the eternal son made human. He is always both. Forever, our Lord will be the God-man. Even in heaven, Christ will be fully human. This is how we receive fulfillment because Colossians says... In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Where do you get fullness? In Christ. That is the only place there is complete perfection, unity, encouragement, strength, 
harmony, and love is in Christ. All the fullness of everything you desire is in Him. And that is the only place. And therefore, verse 20 of Colossians says, Through Him God will reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood shed on the cross. In other words, it's a little bit like this. Jesus, when talking to some of His disciples, after He's just confronted the rich young ruler, this guy's come along and said, Hey, I filled in most of the blanks. What else do I need to do? And Jesus is like, Get rid of the blanks. Go and sell all the blanks and come to me. He's like, I don't think I can do that. Because I think it's about filling in the blanks and following the law. And then Jesus turns and says to his disciples, Hey guys, that's why it's so hard for the guy who's got all the blanks to walk into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that blank filler, blankety blank, to get in. It's impossible. But with God, anything is possible. For with humanity, this is impossible. But God can do it. In other words, who is Jesus? He is the God-man. What can He do? Anything. Whatever He wants. The impossible. Therefore, when fulfillment is not possible for us who are trying to fill in the blanks, Christ says that I can fill in the blanks. And it is possible for you to be fulfilled in Me. Who He is determines what He can do. So what has he done? Well, 1 Corinthians says that in accordance with the Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So in other words, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done, today is the day. You need to accept Christ for the fulfillment of your soul and satisfaction of your life. For your eternity in heaven with Him, rather than being apart from Him, you need to be in Jesus. In who He is and what He has done. But perhaps a lot of us here today are sitting here thinking, well, I did that a long time ago. I believed in Jesus. Therefore, I'm good. Right? I believed in Him. I came forward. I confessed. I raised my hand. I moved whatever. I believed in Jesus. Check. Done. Filled in the blank. And God says, no. It's not about filling in the blanks. Yes, you believe in who He is. Yes, you believe in and what he can do. Yes, you believe in what he did do, but you, longtime Christian, need to believe in what he will do as well. Do you understand that in this chapter, when the Bible says fall short, it is not that you fell short once and you fell off the stage and you got back up and you're over that. This is, in the Greek tense, an iterative, which means it happens over and over and over and over again. It is an ongoing process and it never stops congratulations you are falling short 
at this moment, right now, of God's glory. You got up, you shoveled your driveway, and you came to church, but that doesn't fill the blank. Even on a snowy day, you're still falling short. God's glory is absolutely perfect and infinite, and you are falling short of it right now. So what do you do? Believe in Jesus. Just like you did the first time, you continue believing in Him. And that is why the word justified, Paul puts in the exact same tense. Because God didn't declare you righteous just once. He does it over and over and over again. Jesus is continually speaking over you. Righteous, righteous, clean, washed, atoned, propitiation, redeemed. The works. Again and again and again and again. Because it's not like we fell short once. We're falling short all the time. And so as a Christian, you don't stop believing once you've had the miracle salvation moment. You keep believing over and over again in God's redeeming grace. The whole of life from start to finish is in Christ. It is in Christ and Christ alone that we find fulfillment. We believe in who He is in what He can do, in what He has done, and in what He will do. And that is why the author of Philippians, Paul says it like this. He says, hey, I am sure, I believe, I trust in Christ alone that He who began a good work in you will, in the future, bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the year of salvation. This is the year of belief. This is the year of uncertainty in the job market, presidential elections, China sucking up islands in the South Sea, Russia claiming ground in the Antarctic, ISIS moving throughout the Middle East, and major mergers. This is the year of believing in Jesus. I trust Christ for blank. Fill it in but not with something other than Him. This is the year to believe in Jesus. Whether you are pulled by your relationship or your family or your finances or your uncertainty or whatever else, the answer is still the same. In Christ. In Christ alone. Plant yourself firmly in Him. This is what Jesus means in John chapter 15 when he says, Abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. You want to grow? Be in me. Be in me. Burrow in. Plant yourself in Christ. Snuggle up. Here's your fire. Here's your blanket. Here's your teddy bear. Here's your warmth. Here's your strength. Here's your encouragement that gives you the strength to face the next day. It is in the perfect unification of perfection and humanity that we find fulfillment in Christ, in Christ alone. Therefore, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you were taught. Plant yourself in Christ. Now, I need to be careful how I communicate here because, as I say, plant yourself, it's easy for us to push this 
uh, metaphor or analogy too far to try to make it walk on all fours. Okay, I get it. Plant myself. Jesus, 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 world, 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 peas and carrots, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. <laughs> Nothing else, right? We remove ourselves. No. We plant ourselves in Christ. We go down deep into the rich soil of his love and his truth. And as we germinate there, our roots begin to take root and we grow. And then we come forth and bear fruit. Planting yourself is different than burying yourself. The point of planting yourself is to grow and bear fruit and provide for others. Burying yourself is saying, I'm done, I'm dead, I quit, no more. We are to plant ourselves in Christ so that we get the strength and nutrients we need to grow forth and bear fruit. Plant yourself in Jesus. If you do this, I promise you will experience some amazing results. One of the first things you're going to get is a tremendous amount of confidence You're going to experience comfort and encouragement and release from guilt. One of my favorite songs on the radio right now is by a group called Third Day. And just so you know, I actually, I pray for Christian musicians. Because I don't know if you experience this or not, but like sometimes you listen to Christian music and you're like, "Eh," you know, "Eh," qualities, "Eh," so-so. But there are a few who have maintained their quality and maintained their testimony over a long period of time. They haven't given in to the lure of more money or anything else, but they've remained true to Christ. I pray that God will raise people like that. And I think Third Day is one such group. They sing this song. It's beautiful. They start out with this sort of guilt trip in minor key, you know, and they start out and they're like, you know, everybody's going to stand before God in judgment. And, oh, it's all whoa, whoa, whoa. And then they're looking forward to the throne and they're just feeling it, feeling it. And all of a sudden, the question is, you know, put to them, what have you done? And do you know what their answer is? I trust in Jesus. That's what I did. I believed in Christ. I'm not going to try to fill in the blank with anything else. But I trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, for my justification, for my sanctification, and for my glorification. And I believe that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? You believe in Jesus? Trust in Christ alone. Father, you're a good and gracious God. You do everything just right. And we rarely, if ever, do. And Lord, sometimes it's indwelling sin. Sometimes it's actual sin. Sometimes it's just, uh, you know, the the effects of the sinful world we live in. We pray, God, as you are at work redeeming us and speaking over us, that you would continue to cause us to believe in you. That you would give us strength for the journey and grace for each and every moment, joy for the day and hope for tomorrow. And may all of that, Lord, be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.